glad you guys are all here. Um, I know everybody is in a different uh, stage of life. We're all at different places spiritually, and we've been going through a series called The Walk, and it really is um, it's a discussion about the book of Romans and, and uh, how God wants us to walk with Him um, in every stage of life. We're all in different places, but what God is asking us to do is to take whatever that next step is on our spiritual journey. And for some of us, it's, it's learning and it's growing and it's asking questions. And there are doubts that you have, like, well, what about this? What about this? And you're, you're wondering and, and you're hoping to get some questions answered. For some of you, it's, I know that God wants me to do this, but I'm not sure I'm ready to do it yet. Um, that we're all in different places, and, and this is why we're, we're going through this, this book together, the book of Romans, because it is, it is so helpful um, to, to, to guide us along. And so I, I appreciate that you guys have been with me now. We've been doing this for somewhere around 30, I think I was corrected, I was going to say 31 weeks. Steve corrected me, he said this has been like for 33 weeks, because a few people have, have jumped in and, and uh, spoke for me. But... As we're in our book of Romans, would you guys open in your Bibles, if you've got them, to the book of Romans, to Romans chapter 16. We're going to spend um, the bulk of our time in two places, Romans 16 and then later in Ephesians 1. But uh, in this series and walking with God, we need to stop and focus on a phrase that the New Testament uses often. And actually, um, the Apostle Paul, um, Peter, John, they use this phrase in in different ways. But Paul uses it here. And in verse 20, this is what Paul said. And it's actually sort of a prayer. He, He says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And then he says, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And often he will write and he will say grace to you or grace may grace and peace be to you or the grace of Jesus Christ be to you. And it's a common phrase. But but my question is, what does this mean? We, we kind of say it or we read it. You, you read it and you just kind of go on. Oh, the grace of Jesus to you. Yeah, great. But what does this mean? And now, if you're not a Christian and you didn't grow up in church, I mean, you may not ask this question, but what you're probably noticing of what we just read is that our passage speaks not only of the grace of Jesus, but it also talks about Satan. And for some people in in our country today, they would say, well, wait a minute, you're talking about Satan, and, and, you know, I'm I'm not even sure if this is even a real person or anything. Um, Many people in America, they they have questions about this, but, but you should just know this, that Jesus Christ speaks of Satan as a real person. In the same way that the first man, first woman, um, the Garden of Eden, all of that, Jesus speaks of these things as as historically factual. And so when Paul writes of this and he says, um, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, it's meant to remind us of what happened back in Genesis chapter 3. When God created Adam and Eve, they were given one exception to the things that they were allowed to do. They were told to to keep the garden, to to protect it. They were called to be fruitful and multiply. But the exception was that they could eat any fruit of all the trees, of of everything in the garden. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were not allowed to eat that. And if they ate it, they would die. And this is where Satan comes into the picture. And he he just kind of grabs at this opportunity and he plants a number of lies. And the first lie that he plants basically is this, is since God is restricting you from, from eating that, well, he can't be good. The idea is uh, boundaries are bad. 
And if God's doing this, this is not a good thing. You should be allowed to do anything you want. It's not going to hurt anybody. Why wouldn't you be allowed to eat this? This is sort of a mantra today. You should be allowed to do anything you want. It's not going to hurt somebody. You should just be allowed to go ahead and do that. So that's the first lie that he plants. The second lie was that, well, God can't be trusted to tell you the truth. Um, he, he says, you, you won't die. You'll be like God. You'll, be, you'll know what good and evil is. So these are the things that, that Satan plants into uh, the minds of, of Adam and Eve. And I was reading this week from... Um, uh, a man named James Boyce. He was a pastor down at 10th Presbyterian in uh, Philadelphia. And he asked this question that I thought was a really good question. He says, where does Satan's power come from? And I guess I never stopped to think about that. And this, this is what Boyce writes. He says, his power comes from the character of God that, cl- that declares that sin must be punished. Satan's power comes from the character of God that declares sin must be punished. His strength comes from working within the laws of that character. And he reasoned that if he could get them to sin, get Adam and Eve to sin, the wrath of God would have to come against them. And God's designs would then be thwarted. This is where Satan's power, his leverage is coming in here. And, and, and yet what we see here connected with what Paul writes is he said, well, this is where the grace of Jesus Christ comes in. You see, the God of peace will soon crush Satan on your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. It's, Paul doesn't stick that in there just because, oh, I need something fluffy and religious to say here. He, he says it with meaning. There's a reason why it's here. And the question that I have today and that I want to talk about with you and I want to focus all of our time on is just what is grace? This issue of grace, we talk about it all the time. It's in our name. Um, We we might use the term. It's sort of a Christian word that Christians throw out there. uh, You know, yeah, grace of God. But I don't know that we think about it often enough and and maybe we need to. Um, but, But what is grace? And if I was to ask you guys, I'd probably get a number of answers, um, maybe short definitions. Uh, grace is unmerited favor, something that you don't deserve. Um, it, it's, it's something that, that comes to you that, that is good, but you didn't really do anything to, to, to earn that. You, you don't deserve it. You can't earn it. Matter of fact, if you tried to earn it or if you think you earned it, it's not grace. It's something else. So, so grace is something that it, it's God's help when you need it. That's what um, Hebrews 4 writes about coming boldly before the throne of grace to seek God's help when it, at the time of need. Um, there's an acronym that I remember years ago. It was just take the letters G-R-A-C-E and uh, you, you define it that way. God's riches at Christ's expense. G-R-A-C-E. And so here you have... God's grace coming and you've got Satan who's, who's coming and he's tried to mess up basically everybody's life. But, but this is interesting. Satan failed to see that Jesus would take the place of sinners. We sing about it. Ryan talked about it, about the mercy of God. I was thinking about this. His, his kindness, his mercy and his heart goes to that for us. Why does, it, why does God's heart go there first? And and I would say the reason why God's heart goes there for us is because what God did 
is he spent his wrath and his judgment on Jesus Christ. That's the only reason why the goodness and grace and mercy of God can come to us is because the justice and wrath has gone upon Jesus Christ. And see, Satan failed to see that Jesus would take the place of sinners. That Jesus would bear our punishment. And so, so while Satan is celebrating having Jesus nailed to the cross, he's blind to the full weight of the atonement that was accomplished at the crucifixion. He's blind to that. And although he had been battling with God throughout the ages, throughout the centuries, throughout all of history, he fails to see, or he failed to see, that he had actually been carrying out the purposes of the all-wise God all along. Satan, in his trying to thwart God, was actually carrying out God's purposes the entire time. Which just gives you a little glimpse of how great and how wise God is. Listen to this, Colossians 2 writes about this. And even though you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He nevertheless made you alive with Him, having forgiven all your transgressions. He has destroyed what was against us, a certificate of indebtedness expressed in decrees opposed to us. He has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. And this is the part that sort of points directly at Satan and and at his army, if you will. He says, disarming the hosts and the authorities, he has made a public disgrace to them, triumphing over them by the cross. He, He didn't see it coming. Satan did not see this coming. Now, he is always seeking to divide and destroy and accuse and separate friends from one another, separate family, separate um, marriages. He's always trying to divide. And yet our God is a God of peace. Earlier, Paul said that the God of peace will, will, will crush Satan under your feet. Our God is a God of peace. The word for peace means to bind together the things that were separated Only God can mend what has been torn apart like this. And he accomplished it by grace. By what Jesus Christ did for us. Now, I want to do something that I don't, I try not to do very often, but um, one one person has called what I'm about to do, he's called it kamikaze preaching. And what this means is that I want to talk about some things and I'm going to give you an overview of them. I'm not going to go as deep into them as as people because I'm going to go. I'm going to start touching and you're going to start asking questions and I'm just going to keep on going. Okay, you can ask those questions if you're involved in one of our connect groups. This is a great place to ask these questions. But there are two kinds of grace that I want to talk about today. The first one is called common grace. And then the second one is called saving grace. I want to talk about both of these kinds of grace today. Um, The kind of grace that God makes available to everyone. Everyone in this room has it. Regardless if you're a follower of Jesus or not, regardless of whatever your background was or not, um, you could be an atheist, you could be an agnostic, you could be seeking, trying to figure out what you believe. Wherever you are, everyone in this room, we all have what is called common grace. And so, so common grace is, um, well... There's a man who wrote a book, uh, his name is Herod Kushner. He wrote a book that you've probably heard about. Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. You heard about that book? 
why bad things happen to good people. His thesis was this. Bad things happen to good people because God is not omnipotent. He's just not powerful enough to deal with it. That's why bad things happen to to good people. And at the end of his book, he, he advises, he says, well, we just need to forgive God and to try to go on with life. Because God just, you know, he tries, but he just can't do it. Just gets away from him. This is such a different picture than than what the scriptures teach us about who God is. In fact, you can look there another time if you want. In Luke chapter 13, people are asking the same question. They they do it in a little different way. But, But what has happened recently is King Herod had come and he... I don't know why he was angry, but he attacked people who came to Jerusalem to, uh, to give their offerings and to, to worship God. But he attacked them, he killed them, and even their, it says that they, he killed them, their blood was even mingled in with the offerings they were trying to present with God. So he, he did it in a very, just a, a gruesome way. And in another example here in Luke 13, uh, they, they mentioned the, the idea that there was a tower that collapsed. And when the tower collapsed, it fell on 18 people and they were all killed. And the idea in Luke 13, the, 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 the issue, the fact that the victims here, they were innocent, that is like central to the question. Why do tragedies happen if God is good and if he's in control? And that's the, this, is the, this is where the kamikaze preaching comes in, because I'm not going to answer all that. But this is a deep question that everybody struggles with. People struggle with this. Why do tragedies happen if God is good and if he's in control? And perhaps, maybe, maybe God isn't good. And you can hear the whispers of Satan within that statement. God's not good. If he was good, he'd let you have of every tree. You should go ahead and eat because then you can eat it and you can be like God. That's, that's the whisper there. Or, or maybe these people who were killed, maybe they were secret sinners and they deserved it. You can come up with all kinds of answers, but, but see, Jesus, his answer was startling. In, in Luke 13, 2 through 5, basically he summarizes, he says this. Do you think that they were worse sinners because they died this way? Do you think they were worse sinners because they were killed when they were doing this or when the the, the, the whole the tower fell on them? Do you think they're worse sinners because they died this way? And he says, no. And then he says this. But unless you repent, you too will perish. What's his point? His point is this. If it weren't for common grace... This is what everybody should expect to receive. We shouldn't expect to receive the good that we receive every day. And so when we ask, you know, why bad things happen to good people, what we're actually doing is we're asking the wrong question. The right question is, why do good things happen to bad people? Or maybe a better question is, why do good things happen at all? That's the question we ought to ask. We're all bad people. We know this in in our hearts. We know the things that that happen. And yet good things happen to us every day. We have food. I look around this room and I see some of you have eaten more food than others. We, We have places to stay. I noticed all of you are wearing clothes, which is a really good thing. But we've got families 
and we've got friends and we've got hobbies and you've been giving meaningful things to do. Why haven't worse things happen? Why didn't the building collapse on us? Why were we not killed by a a, a gunman or, or something like that? Why did God allow us, as wicked as we are, to get out of bed today? Common grace. Common grace. The answer is grace. Grace, God is so gracious and grace is so amazing that that it's hard to get our heads wrapped around it, but we really do need to think about it. See, even to sinners, but by the way, there's no other kind of person. Because we have all sinned, we all fall short of the glory of God. That's what scripture teaches. But grace, he gives grace even to sinners. But see, here's the thing. Common grace cannot move a person into a right relationship with God on its own. Um, And and the way that Christians say that, that we would say that in in sort of a church word is, is that common grace saves no one. We use that word save to to mean um, forgive a person for their sin. Bring them salvation so that they have a right relationship with God and they're going to spend eternity with God. That's what we mean when we say saves. Okay. Common grace saves no one. And yet there is a kind of, there's a special grace where God operates through the teaching of his word, through the preaching of his word, through the hearing of his word. And there's a special kind of grace that happens to us. And this is the second kind of grace, saving grace. Now, now I want to remind you, I'm still kamikaze preaching here. Okay, so this is just an overview. But but saving grace, we could spend a number of messages on this, but saving grace is shown in in three parts. Theologians have, have described it in three parts. The first one illustrates God's sovereignty. The second part illustrates his his redemption. And then the third part, we'll just call it efficacious grace. It's how God makes it effective in your life. That's what efficacious means, is how he does it, how he makes it effective. So the the first one we're going to talk about is sovereignty. We're going to call it sovereign grace. And and this is how God displays his his saving grace on whomever he will. And this is where most of us in the room, if you weren't already a little bit ruffled, this is where we kind of get ruffled. We want to kind of protest a little bit. But but listen to how God describes it or how it's described by Paul when he writes it down in Ephesians 1. He says this. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Okay, wait, stop there. When did God choose to give his saving grace to people? When did he choose us? Before the foundation of the world. That was before you had any initiative to do anything. That means it's all about God choosing, right? It says that, that we should be holy without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself. It's another one of those key words, predestined. According to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glory of grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. Now, there's a lot of thoughts within this passage right here. But the primary thought is election. God's saving grace, what is it based on according to this passage? It's based on him. It's not based on us. It's not based on me. It's not based on you. And sometimes his grace is explained as a like electing grace or um, saving grace. 
because it's in accordance with the, all the pleasure of his will. He's the initiator here. So this is the first kind of grace that, that is involved in saving grace. It's, it's his sovereignty or sovereign grace. Second one is called redeeming grace. Redemption involves God the Father. He's the one who planned this whole thing. God the Son. He's the one who uh, accomplished it all. And God the Holy Spirit. He's the one that applies it to our lives. So Ephesians, uh, Paul continues writing there in Ephesians Verse 7, he says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. So, redemption. Redemption is a commercial term. The idea of redeeming something, we understand, you know, we, we have a coupon and we could redeem it, or you've got a gift card and you can redeem it, whatever it is. But, but at this time, redemption meant to buy in the marketplace and you set it free through a ransom. So really what it was referring to mostly would be slaves. A person who was being sold as a slave, you could buy a person and you could set them free by paying whatever the ransom is. And then this is actually meant to be a picture. It's a picture of you and me. Because the picture is this. Everyone in this room, everyone in our community, everyone in our nation, we were at least, or maybe some of us would say we are, but we were slaves to sin, unable to free ourselves. We are slaves. Uh, James Boyce, he continues on, he says this, um, instead of freeing us, the world around us merely gambles for our souls. It offers everything that its currency has, fame, Sex, pleasure, power, wealth. And for these things, there are millions that sell their eternal souls and then they're perishing. But Jesus enters the marketplace as our Redeemer. And He bids the price. And the price that He bids is His blood. And then God says, sold to Jesus Christ. There is no higher bid than this. You can't up the bid past that. No higher bid. And so what happens is we become His forever. This is why Peter says this in 1 Peter 18. He says, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver or gold, from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot. The only thing that could buy you is Jesus' blood. And that's why we sing about songs about the blood of Jesus. This is why Peter calls it, he calls it precious. It's his precious blood. It's the only thing. So, so this is the second element in saving grace. And let me just move on to the third element of saving grace. This is what theologians call efficacious grace. It's simply... I shouldn't say it simply, but I'm going to put it in simplistic terms. It's the work of the Holy Spirit applying His grace to you, making it effective in your life, leading you to faith in Jesus Christ. It's where He leads you. It's the Holy Spirit, the one who guides you and causes this. Listen to uh, Ephesians 1.13. In Him you also trusted, that's Jesus, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed 
with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit comes in and he says, all right, I'm going to cause you, I'm going to move you to faith, and I'm going to seal you so that you could never lose this relationship to the praise of his glory. That the Holy Spirit says, I'm going to make it work out for the rest of your life. Now, this is how God's grace saves us. These, these three elements. One of the best pictures I think that, that we could find, um, a, a picture of God's saving grace is it happens in John 11. Where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Many of you have heard this. If you haven't heard it, um, message was sent to Jesus while he was away. Lazarus is sick. And the guys, all the disciples are like, oh, we should go see him. We should go help him. Jesus says, no, we're going to stay a little while longer. Jesus waits and he stays. And then finally says, let's go see him. And the disciples are a little bit, you know, confused. But they go, by the time they get there, he, Lazarus has been dead for four days. And at this point in time, after four days, his body is already putrefying. So... When the scripture says that you and I, that we were dead in sin, this is what it means. Putrefying. We don't need just a jump start with, you know, like a little, you know, chest compression to, to, to wake us up or to bring us back. Okay. I know of people, they've had a heart attack. Someone performs CPR, resuscitates them. But there is no hope for life for a body that has been dead and is putrefying. And yet, with God, all things are possible. So Jesus called out and he says this to us. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Now, what could Lazarus do? There's nothing else that he could do. When God calls him, he says, this is what I want you to do. Lazarus has to do it. So what does Lazarus do? He gets up, he's alive, he, he stands up, he comes out. Why? Because God called him to do that. See, you, you and I, we could call and say, you know, we, I call my dog and he doesn't come or she doesn't come. Right? <laughs> Molly, come forth. And no, I'm not that squirrel, right? No, but see, when God calls, we, we have to do this. And see, this is what God's saving grace looks like. This is what it looks like for the God of peace to mend inside you what the devil has been ripping up and tearing apart and dividing. And through his sovereign plan, he chooses to redeem us and he gives us the Holy Spirit to awaken this dead, putrid, foul smelling soul. And he gives me life. He, he gave me life. He, he makes us clean. He makes us effective through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. This is, this is how he does it. Now, now by the way, this, this idea of grace, not just as common grace, but also saving grace. God commands us, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can't just keep it to yourself. You can't just hold, hoard it. He commands us, he says, you're commanded to grow in grace. This means... That we've got to make a deliberate and constant and frequent effort to bring what Jesus has done for us to the front of our minds. It's got to be constant. It's got to be frequent. It has to be deliberate to talk about, to think about it. But it doesn't stop there because, see, his grace is not meant for us to hoard. 
So often we think that, oh, God's given me grace and now I'm going to just hold on to it. That this is mine. But it's not meant for us to hoard. It's meant for us to share. It's meant for us to give. We're meant to be grace traffickers. Taking it to other people, sharing it with them who they haven't heard about it. They don't understand it. But see, we have to use what God has gifted us. We have to share it with other people. And this is what we see when Paul has been writing in the book of Romans. By the time that he wrote Romans, Paul had already somewhere around five different ministers in training. He had been training men um, for the ministry. And either they were with him or they were on assignment to other places. But we know of guys like Timothy and, and Silas and Luke and Titus. And in our text here in Romans, because now we're back in Romans... I told you, the kamikaze preaching, we're in and out. We're out successfully. I'm still alive. But he sends greetings from those who are with him, who are helping him while he's in Corinth. And he says this. Now, Timothy, my fellow worker, and Lucius, and Jason, Sosipater, my countrymen, they greet you. Now, in just a minute, I'm going to tell you what this has to do with grace, but just bear with me. Timothy is mentioned. He's one of Paul's closest friends and most trustworthy disciples. He met him on his first missionary journey when he was in Lystra. And he saw something in Timothy and he invited him. He says, you want to come on mission with me and and I'll mentor you. And Paul often remarked that Timothy, he's, he's, he's like my son. He calls my, he says, my son, Timothy, uh, he, he loves him like he is a son, a true son in the faith. And Timothy would end up shepherding the, the, the Ephesian church. But, but Timothy greets the people in Rome. And Paul also writes, he mentions three other Jewish believers. Lucius is probably one of the prophets and teachers that Paul knew in Acts 13 in, in Antioch. Jason, probably the same Jason that he met in Thessalonica, where the Jews saw what Paul and Silas were doing. They became very jealous, became very envious because people were starting to follow them. So, so they get angry at them and they gathered a, a, a mob and they attacked the house of Jason where Paul was staying, hoping that they could, you know, grab Paul and grab Silas out there. But they weren't in the house. So this mob is like, well, what are we going to do? So they grab Jason and they haul him out. They drag him out to the rulers of the city with a complaint. Here's their complaint. These who have turned the world upside down have come here, too. Jason has harbored them. And these all are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king. Jesus. This is their accusation against Jason. Jason and the others who were there, they were now basically going to be confined, put in jail. They had to put up bail, basically, to be able to be released and when they were released, they went, they found Paul and Silas and said, you got to get out of here. And so they, they sent him away by night to Berea, where they met this guy named Sosipater, or is, maybe his nickname would be Sopater. He's mentioned that other places. But he's the guy who, who went with Paul through Greece on the way to Jerusalem to present an offering to the Gentile, or the, the, the Gentile churches. They took an offering and they wanted to give to the poor in Jerusalem because the believers in Jerusalem were being persecuted. And they had a hard time even buying food. And so, so Sipater, he comes with Paul. 
And he heads for the church of Jerusalem. But these are his kinsmen, it says. These are his countrymen. They're friends who have been through trials with him. Paul risked his life to get them the gospel. And now they do the same thing for other people. God's grace comes through Paul to go to these guys. And now these guys are taking God's grace and they're saying, we're going to go take this to other people. And this is what growing in God's grace looks like. Keeping in mind what Jesus has done and so that you can share it with others. It doesn't just mean growing and accepting God's grace. Yes, you do need to grow in learning to accept God's grace. But it's also letting it flow through you to other people. And that's what they're doing. And by the way, I think everybody needs friends like this, right? Somebody who's going to stand with you when others are against you for no good reason. Sometimes there are people involved in the same kind of work that you're in or the same school, the same classes or whatever. But it is so much appreciated when somebody comes alongside you and stands with you for what is right. Kind of like what happened with Jason here. Now, when Paul wrote Romans, he was in the, the, the town or the city of Corinth. And while he was in Corinth, he was there for a, for a long time. But he stayed in the house of a wealthy nobleman named Gaius. And what happened is that the, the grace of God compelled Gaius to use his house to, to host, to host the church, to host the local ministry. So he would say, listen, on the first day of the week, why don't you all just come over to my house and we will worship God together. You, we'll just meet at my place. It's big enough. Other people may not have it. We, we, rather than just meet out in the open, we'll just come into my house. And he opens it up, and God compels him to do this. And it also looks like, because he was a wealthy man, that, that he may have lent Paul what's called an, an amanuensis, or, a, or a, a secretary, if you will, to dictate, to, to compile the letter to the Romans. So it's very common for Paul to do this. He would dictate to somebody and somebody else would write it down. And Paul may have notes or thoughts and they would compile it into a letter and they would send the, he would send the letter to the different churches in different places. So, so Paul probably supervised. He was involved in this. He reviewed it. He dictated. And he had a number of notes probably. And it's all included in this letter. But at this point in the letter, Paul looks at the amanuensis who is writing this all down. His name is Tertius. And he, and he basically says, hey... You've been helping me with this. Why don't you go ahead and just greet them yourself? So Tertius, he says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Just a note here. If you memorize this verse, you can tell other people that you've memorized the entire works of Tertius in the New Testament. Sounds really cool, right? But then he says this, Gaius, my host... And the host of the whole church greets you. Erastus, the treasurer of the city, greets you. And Cordus, a brother. So, so Gaius is one of the few people that were baptized by Paul and Corinth after they trusted Jesus as their Savior. Paul says, I know I baptized Gaius. And a few, but other than that, I didn't baptize anybody. But here what we've got is we've got four men that are listed who are on very opposite sides of the financial spectrum. Gaius, he's wealthy. He's got his household that everybody meets in. But then we find out Erastus. He's actually called the city treasurer. In, in 1929, they found a stone in, in Corinth with the name Erastus on it, which, which says this. Erastus, in return for, the, for his edileship, laid the pavement at his own expense. So an edile is just an official in charge of, of public buildings and streets and markets. 
So we find that this guy, he's probably pretty wealthy. He's a, maybe a politician of some sort. But we have the other two guys, Tertius and Cordus. I just want to tell you a little bit and spend the rest of our time talking about Tertius and Cordus. Um, Donald Bar- Barnhouse, he was uh, a, a pastor from well, a, a while back. He wrote about a time when he was in China. He says, I stayed at this really beautiful home that had many servants. And one of the servants spoke English. And everything was under this one servant's control. Everything. And the owner of the home, he told Barnhouse, he says, um, he is the best number one boy in China. So Barnhouse is curious. He says, what what does that mean? What are the requirements of a number one boy, according to what this guy said? And this is what, what he explained. He explained, the number one boy is a Chinese institution. He runs absolutely everything in connection with the household. He hires the other servants. He supervises the marketing. You would never find him carrying a package. A third boy or a fourth boy would be doing that. The number one boy is the equivalent of an English gentleman's gentleman, plus a nurse, plus a housekeeper, and many other things. The ambition of a third boy is to become a second boy, and the ambition of a second boy is to become a number one boy. I was trying to think, how can we relate to this in in, in America? Do we have any Star Trek fans here? Great, three. Okay. This is really going to fly. You know, so incidentally, if you know Captain Brigard, he, he would often say to his second in command and he would say, make it so, number one. He would call him number one, even though he wasn't number one. He was the number two guy, but he would call. Him. So this is the same idea. This is the same system was prevalent in the Roman Empire in the same way it was in China. It was in, in Rome. And the names of two servants... Number three and number four are recorded here. So in a prominent Roman household, the servants would have the names of Primus, that's number one. Secundus is number two. Tertius is number three. Cordus is number four. Quintus is number five, and so on. And here we've got two slaves adding their names next to Timothy and Paul and Gaius and Erastus. Number three greets you in the Lord. Number four, a brother greets you. What this means is that these are most likely slaves in Gaius' household. They, they had been there with, with Gaius. Gaius is a, a rich guy. And see, here, here's, here's where it comes down. This is where we understand. See, God's saving grace, it doesn't come on the worthy. And just because those who are wealthy, because they're intelligent, it comes upon those who realize their helplessness those who realize that they need forgiveness who come to god humbly and anybody can do that and anyone can receive it and the grace of god is the most wonderful thing in the world so i wonder if you go back and you were to go back in time and you could talk to gaius or you could talk to his slaves actually if you could talk to tertius and cordus number three and number four What would you find out? You could ask them questions. Well, did your master ever flog you when when you were when he was drunk? How did he treat you? Um, Were your lives difficult? 
Were you were you surrounded with sorrow because you you are you are you were sold as a slave for one reason or another? We don't know why. If they sold themselves into slavery or, or for what reason? What I want you to do is I want you to imagine alongside me and, and also something that Donald Barnhouse wrote because he's the one that, that brought this to my attention. But because this is what I think that you would hear from number three and number four. Yeah, we were slaves. But one day Paul came into the house of our master Gaius and we saw a great transformation in him. He even was baptized according to this religious tradition that the Christians did. And Gaius was transformed. And he began to be kind to us. And soon he had Paul tell us about Jesus Christ. And for two years, Paul lived in Corinth and he would come to our house often. And we would get the bread and the wine ready when the crowd came on Sunday. And it made more work for us, but... To be honest, it was delightful. And they broke the bread. And we began to eat from the same loaf as our master. And they filled a chalice with wine and our master sipped it and he smiled as he handed it to us. And day after day, everything was transformed. And he put his hand on us and he cried as he spoke of the grace of God that had saved us all. He said that he was our master, but he realized that he had a master, Jesus Christ. And he wanted to treat us the way that Christ treated him. And love transformed our lives. This is grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus be to you. This is what grace looks like. So what does grace and kindness look like? What what does the grace and kindness of Jesus do when it enters our lives? Well, first it transforms us. And then it begins to transform our relationships. It enables us to forgive people who don't deserve to be forgiven by us. And it moves us to do so. Because we just look at what we have done against God and He has forgiven us. It brings the things of God into our sphere of life. So this is how the grace of God, it changes us and it challenges us. And it challenges us to share what we've received from Jesus to other people as well. So how do I show grace at work? Where do I get the power to show grace to the person who constantly opposes me at school, in the neighborhood, in my family? How do I show grace to the person who I don't feel deserves it? Because grace is always undeserved. And the answer is just simply this. You won't be able to do it on your own. It's only going to be through your relationship with Jesus Christ and through the power of the Spirit that you can become a person of grace. Because once you've received it, it grows so large you can't contain it and you've got to begin giving it to other people as well. This is what we're called to do. 
Do you remember how Jesus said, um, he said that in the kingdom of heaven, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. You remember that? So in heaven, these two guys, they won't be called Tertius and Quartus, number three and number four. Instead, they will just simply be primus and primus. Because this is the way the grace of God works and lifts us lifts us up. And this is how the transforming grace of Jesus is. And why every one of us has an obligation to share the grace of God with someone who hasn't heard this week. And so my question to you is this. Who do you need to show grace to? This week. It could be a family member. It could be a person at your work. It could be a person here in our congregation at church. Maybe it's a person who's never really heard about Jesus before. And they need the grace of Christ desperately. But it's up to you. It's up to you. How will you do it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, first of all, we come to you and we thank you and we fall down and we say we do not deserve it. We are unworthy servants. We are full of sin. And you picked us up when we were putrefying. And you gave us new life. Thank you for your grace. Lord, we see that the world around us is putrefying. And the only answer to that, it must be through you. It must be through the grace of Christ. Because what this world sells and what this world is trying to redeem people with, it is not working. It is wrong. And the only thing that can help is the grace of Jesus Christ, the precious blood that was shed for our sins. And so I pray, Lord, would you continue to empower us? Would you help us to grow in grace and understanding the grace that has come to us, but also in giving out the grace that we can give to other people? Lord, thank you for giving it to us. Thank you for your spirit that makes it effective in our lives. Help us now, Lord, to be a people of grace as we live sharing the grace of Jesus Christ with others. And we pray this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for coming, Grace Point. You are dismissed. And let's go share that grace that he has given us. Have a great day.